There's a script up here. What is this? Oh, am I supposed to read this? It's like a turn off your phones and utilize the conference app, join the conversation on social media. I don't. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll, yeah.
47. Should I get started? Okay. Hello. Hello, everyone. We're going to get started. I do not have an, an, an commanding voice, I guess. <laughs> Hi, everyone. We're going to get started soon, so if we could, you know, minimize conversations. Um, thanks, Michaela. <laughs> okay. Um, well, welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming and joining our session today. Um, we are going to be talking about strategies to integrate racial and health equity into nutrition education and food systems transformation plans. Um, uh, before we begin, I want to ask you guys to oh, to um, turn off your cell phones or at least put them on vibrate so they don't go off during the conversation. Um, also, we ask that you uh, or encourage you to use the conference app. Um, it grants you access to all the functions and keeps you updated with the latest announcements. And also, if you're posting to social media, uh, use the hashtag SNEB2023. Um, and then we will be doing questions at the end of the presentation. Um, so without further ado, I will introduce our speakers. Um, first, we have Amy, um, who serves as the CEO of Dairy Council in California, elevating the health of children and communities through lifelong eating patterns. Um, then we have Maggie, who is the Director of Research and Evaluation at the Public Health Institute, um, Center for Wellness and Nutrition, and she has over 20 years of experience conducting evaluations. Um, and then we have Michaela, who is the SNAPED specialist at the Georgia Department of Human Services, um, Division of Family and Children's Services. And then there's me, and I am a research scientist at the Public Health Institute, um, supporting uh, SNAPED evaluations and um, focusing on racial equity. And yes, so I will. Just uh, the session objectives today, we want to describe recommendations from a multi-state health equity needs assessment, um, examine the community engagement models, uh, evaluation practices, and program implementation that can advance health equity, and apply one strategy shared in your nutrition, education, and food system plans to improve equitable practices. So I will pass it over to Amy. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. So first, um, we're going to kick off by talking a little bit about our Southeast Multi-State Racial and Health Equity SNAP-Ed Needs Assessment. This was conducted in 2022. We worked with four states um, to conduct it, so Georgia, Mississippi, North Carolina, and South Carolina, as well with 18 implementing agencies across all four of those states. Um, so the Public Health Institute Center for Wellness and Nutrition partnered with them and we were looking at a formative evaluation to identify uh, racial and health equity and how it could be used in the concept, context of the SNAP-Ed evaluation framework. That was the initial kind of 
thought, but as we dug into it, we went even went beyond just the framework and came up with a list of recommendations that could likely support increased equity across the program. Um, the methods that we utilized within this formative evaluation was we did an extensive literature review that primarily focused on some of the indicators. So um, this was not the first evaluation that we did in the Southeast region. Um, we've worked up with up to all of the eight states, you know, and this one was half of the states. Um, so there was core indicators that they had utilized in the past, looking at um, healthy eating and PSC strategies. So we wanted to kind of focus in a little bit more on those particular indicators. Um, and that's primarily what we looked through in the literature review. Um, we also just snap an implementer survey. So that was conducted across all of the 18 implementing agencies across the four states. We did an iterative process with a work group um, that was comprised of state agencies and representatives across the region to make sure that we were capturing um, everything that was wanted to be known. We also conducted key informant interviews both in the Southeast region and across the United States of people either working in SNAPED or familiar with SNAPED and already looking to advance equity through their programming. Um, last, we did the GIS mapping um, to kind of target in and look at where people were conducting services within each of these states. Um, we also, you know, at, looked at different um, racial and ethnic makeups within those GIS tracks to see were, there, were we meeting the needs of the community, were there areas that we needed to serve better. So that was part of the whole initial needs assessment. Um, going into the program, we kind of came up with this definition for health equity, although because there wasn't a common definition for health equity within um, the SNAPED guidance or the framework, so we kind of used one that was already out there. Um, so this was kind of the basis that we went back to as we went throughout this, and this is what we shared with people that participated in surveys and or key informant interviews. Um, so we did come up, we do have um, both a short report and a long report on these findings, but primarily today we're going to talk about the recommendations and then we're going to share some of the applications of these rep recommendations and next steps. Um, and everyone on this panel today was involved in this report, so we will we'll be able to answer some additional questions towards the end of the session if you have them. Um, but primarily after conducting all of these things, synthesizing, synthesizing the data and having the findings, we came up with a list of recommendations. Um, and these were recommendations that we felt that if programs were able to implement, they could come closer to, towards equity and racial um, equity, specifically was a focus of this particular report. So one thing that came out loud and clear is that we need to adopt a common, de common definition of equity and the application of equity within SNAPED. So we all kind of know what equity is, but what is our common de definition and how do we apply that in SNAPED? What is SNAPED's role? Um, and how do we utilize that with cross partners? So that was uh, something that came out very loud and clear from everyone saying, we all wanna do this, but there's really not a common way of doing it, and there's not a common definition of how SNAPED should be doing this. Um, another thing that came out was needing to build a diverse and equity-focused workforce. So for working with low-income, multilingual, multicultural, multiracial groups, we want to have our workforce that looks more like the people that we're serving in order for them to um, be more relatable and more trusting, and also just having that lens within your own organizations. Um, this also came out was in addition to within your own program with your larger organizations. So some people had a lot of support across their organization, but then some said within our program we have this, or, this support, but across our organization we don't have the same level of support. So um, you know that, that's things some of you may be dealing with in your own organizations. Um, 
The next thing that really came out loud and clear was adapt program timelines and funding models for a more equitable approach. Any of you that work within SNAP-Ed, you know that it's an annual timeline. Things are really um, come around quickly. Um, funding dollars might be strict. Um, so they wanted more adaptability in program timelines. Maybe we can't have outcomes every year. Maybe it needs to go into the next year. Maybe our fund funding models need to be more equitable. If we want to work with community-based organizations, um, they can't follow all of the SNAP at administrative things. They don't have enough staff, even if we provide them funding. So how can we streamline this so um, Boots on the Ground can really receive this funding and do the good work? Create and adapt nutrition education curriculum and resources to be more culturally and linguistically responsive. Although there have been some strives in this area, there seem to be even needs for even more um, to also be able to serve properly the different cultures and the different enclaves that you all may be seeing within your state or region. Another thing with the, within the evaluation of SNAP-Ed data was to disaggregate the data by race, race and ethnicity. That was really important to see. Um, yes, we're getting positive findings, but if we disaggregate it, are we seeing differences across race, racial and ethnic lines? Is that an opportunity to show maybe we're doing really well somewhere, but when we disaggregate, we're seeing um, it's actually not working with, for certain groups, so we may need to adapt and adjust our programming to look at that. Or maybe we're doing great and it's working for everyone, but that was something uh, that was a needed to see. If we don't look at it this way, how are we going to know? Um, De-emphasizing de individual behavior change. Oftentimes, a lot of our effort in SNAP-Ed goes to the individual behavior change, but also we're also working on PSEs, and we know that putting all the onus on the individual is not the best, right? We know environments, resources, and other things um, impact how people are able to actually make healthier behavior changes and sustain them. Um, the next recommendation was building strategic and inclusive partnerships. So, you know, non-traditional partnerships, again, with some of those CBO organizations, some of those organizations that are in those high-need communities that already have the trusted relationship and already know their community well and are more poised to serve than maybe large institutions. Um, there may also be other institutions where they can actually do advocacy and policy-related work that is much needed to actually get to equity that you may have limitations if you're only working under SNAP-Ed funding. And last but not least, community engagement opportunities for SNAP-Ed eligible residents. You know, if we're, they're not included in the conversation, we don't know if we're meeting their needs, we don't know exactly what their needs are, and oftentimes the best solutions are coming for the people closest to the problems, right? They know what the problems are and they know what they need in order to be successful, so if we're leaving them out of the conversation, we're missing a whole, um, piece of the puzzle that we can't solve without them. And then also um, they have the ability again to take charge within their communities and make changes that maybe we can't alone. So those were our high level recommendations. Again, we've all been part of this um, study and we can take additional questions at the end, but for now I'm gonna pass it over to Michaela who's gonna talk a little bit about how they've been able to implement some of these findings in Georgia. Hi, everybody. Um, again, my name is Michaela Gallo. I'm the SNAP Nutrition Education Project Specialist for the state of Georgia. I work at the state agency, which is the Division of Family and Children's Services, Department of Human Services. It's a very long name. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about um, some of the work that we've embarked on in Georgia specifically to improve our program reach, improve program effectiveness, and increase our program partners. 
So just to give you guys a little bit of an overview, SNAP Nutrition Education, or SNAP Ed, as most of us know, our activities are evaluated on the federal fiscal year. So in 2022, which was our most recent federal fiscal year, our SNAP Ed program reached around 104,000 participants through nutrition education alone, and an additional 79,000 participants through policy systems and environmental changes. Um, our four implementing agencies, which are Health Empowers, the University of Georgia, DPH, and Open Hand Atlanta, um, they taught classes in 71 counties throughout the state of Georgia. So as Amy mentioned previously, one of the recommendations from the needs assessment was to develop a common definition of equity. So equity in SNAP-Ed may mean that everyone eligible for SNAP-Ed services receives a fair and just exposure and material benefits from policy systems and environmental changes, or PSCs for short, um, direct nutrition education, DNE for short, and social marketing. You'll hear me refer to them as PSCs and DNEs because it's very long to say the full thing every time. Um, equity is both a process and an outcome and is how we approach healthy community changes and create programs that are culturally and linguistically relevant for all SNAP-Ed participants. Equity as a process would include centering the most affected by poor health outcomes in decision making and about how interventions to address these inequities are designed, implemented, and evaluated. Additionally, it would be intentional about sharing the knowledge developed, asset created, and accolades received with program participants. So for SNAP-Ed in Georgia, we base a lot of our work on the social determinants of health, the socio-ecological model, and the Communities in Action Pathways to Health Equity. This Communities in Action Pathways to Health Equity model that you see on the screen here um, is a good pictorial depiction of how the social determinants, influences, structure of health, interacts with overall health. We believe that our role as health educators is to understand equity, support community members in being change agents, and adapting programming to address the unique local assets and concerns to address dietary quality and active living. Our approach is to center people eligible for SNAP-Ed services and crafting solutions to address dietary quality and active living. We are guided by the community engagement to ownership framework that was developed by Facilitating Power. We see community engagement as an opportunity to invest in relationships, center the most impacted, and support community members to own nutrition and active living activities at the end of our program service. So now I get to talk about the fun stuff. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about our projects that we've actually implemented in Georgia over the past few years. Um, one project we've worked on specifically was our community-based organization funding project, otherwise known as our mini-grant funding. Um, our, pro our program created a funding source specifically for agencies that were interested in applying and becoming SNAP nutrition education implementing agencies. So the funding comes with support and technical assistance, and the overall goal for, was for the agencies to complete a site-level needs assessment, and then afterwards, that would be in their first year, and then afterwards we would engage partners to apply for full implementation of the DNE, PSE, and social marketing components of SNAP-EB. Um, in the following federal fiscal year. So our focus in this project was to recruit partners that provide SNAP-Ed services to priority populations in areas where our SNAP-Ed program has little to no reach currently. The next are more so community engagement opportunities that we offered. So we wanted to explore working with SNAP-Ed eligible people who can be thought partners in creating a effective programs. And through this mindset, we established a community advisory board, we explored community listening sessions, and we worked with our partners to discuss the possibility of developing a youth advisory board, which would guide the work of our SNAP-Ed program specifically tailored to the youth audience, since SNAP-Ed is mostly catered towards adults, but 
we really wanted to focus on a youth element as well because the youth is the future. So we really wanted to focus on that. So the community advisory board actually has 11 um, SNAP-Ed eligible community members. I, I did a typo, sorry, on my slide. <laughs> um, and they, their goal was to guide the work of our SNAP-Ed programs. Um, and they were recruited across the state. We have members from, I believe it's 11 different counties across the state, which is great. Um, and they were, they were recruited to provide program um, improvement recommendations. The community listening sessions are actually happening currently. Um, we're holding five community listening sessions across the state of Georgia. Um, and it's going to be this month and next month. And these are ways that we can engage directly with our community residents around nutrition and active living. I actually had the, um, oh my gosh, I lost my whole train of thought. <laughs> Sorry, y'all, this is my first presentation, so please bear with me. <laughs> um, I had the opportunity to go to one of these community listening sessions a few weeks ago, and it was really awesome to get to be with the community members. We had about 30 community members in the metro Atlanta area at one of a lo at a local community-based organization, and these community members had a lot to say about nutrition and active living, and we really engaged them and talked to them about what is going well in your community, what are some problems in your community, where can we step in, and where can we help you in your community. And it was really great to see like how engaged they all were, um, and we actually were turning people away at the door because more, more people wanted to come in than we had room for. So that was really cool to see. I'm excited to see how the other four go throughout the rest of the summer. Um, the Youth Advisory Board, that one of our health, one of our um, agencies, Health Empowers, has already established a Youth Advisory Board for their specific organization. However, when you look at their Youth Advisory Board, it's looking at their their program as a whole, where SNAP-IT is just one facet of that Youth Advisory Board. So what we want to do is potentially have a huge Youth Advisory Board for the whole state of Georgia, looking at SNAP-IT specifically. Um, we're looking, we're in the data mining process and we just conducted two focus groups um, in June and early July at a middle school and a local community-based organization. Amanda was a part of that and she could probably tell y'all more, but from what we've been told, they were really great. Um, I didn't have the opportunity to go to them, but we're really excited to see the report and the youth were really actively engaged and they also, they also have a lot of opinions about nutrition and active living in their communities. So, we're looking forward to seeing where this can go in the future. Um, and for all three of these opportunities, all the participants were reimbursed for their time. Um, and for the community listening session, the community-based organization was provided with reimbursement and tools in order to f help us facilitate the um, community listening sessions. I wanna talk a little bit about our community advisory board. That's something that I'm very involved with, um, with our organization. So. Our community advisory board members um, had the opportunity to participate in several activities, including reviewing and scoring mini grant proposals, providing input on a physical activity social marketing campaign, and participating in a data dive conversation. This is another way that we want to center our community members in our SNAP-Ed programs. The CAB members have simple homework assignments that are um, not graded or anything. They're just graded for completion and attendance. Um, they must complete 90% of assignments and participate in 80% of meetings in order to receive their full reimbursement. And they can complete 60% of assignments and 50, attend 50% 50 of meetings in order to receive partial reimbursement for their um, overall, I guess, their overall participation in the Community Advisory Board. Um, our meetings are held once a month, and um, they're about an hour and a half to two hours long. So it's been really fun to be a part of, um, and gaining community feedback is always really important. 
Another way we center equity in our SNAP-Ed program is that our program collects, um, collects and disaggregates program data by race, ethnicity, and language to determine if there are disparate impacts. The Georgia implementing agencies also have a standard survey question bank for healthy eating and food resource management. It's 10 questions, and they um, input those 10 survey questions. They give them to the participants at the end of the nutrition education classes. They fill those out, and those responses go into our larger database, which is called PEARS, um, and we report on those every federal fiscal year. Um, the, we also have used uh, GIS mapping in order to guide program services by identi identifying geographical gaps in services and tailoring program investments in areas without SNAP-Ed programming. We also conduct a multitude of training and technical assistance opportunities. In 2021, we contracted with the Public Health Institute to facilitate a workforce assessment, and this information was used to guide training and technical assistance opportunities in the following federal fiscal year 2022. We held a training series for our implementing agencies and partners on topics such as community engagement, policy systems and environmental changes, and evaluations with a focus on equity principles. And additionally, we collected resources for agencies to explore and use for skill building, and we put it all on a page for them to be able to easily access. So what are some lessons learned? We learned that disaggregating data provides an opportunity to determine how effective programs are for different groups. Disaggregated data also presents some concerns, which includes interpreting data within the context of the class and agency capacity, small sample sizes, and making decisions about how this information is shared with our partners. We also focus on advancing the PSE change work. We do recognize that nutrition education is the bulk of our SNAP-Ed work, but we want to focus on how people are interacting with their environments and like making those changes before, so that way they're able to easily understand the actual things that they're learning in their nutrition education classes. We have to go into the communities, find out what they're learning, and then that way they can tie everything back in a pretty little bow when they go into their nutrition education classes. Um, engaging with community residents means that understanding that information from people will need to be implemented, how impl implementation affects recommendations, and determine who is responsible for those changes. It's also important to understand burnout and breaks in meetings and meeting times. For example, our community advisory board, as I mentioned before, we do meet monthly. However, we are on a two-month break for the summer. So it was identified in 2022 that our CAB members, we, in June and July, a lot of them have their kids at home. They are either working or they're on family vacations or what, what have you. And there was, we had little to no attendance in those summer months. And they notated it in an end of year survey that maybe we shouldn't be there in the summer. You know, we're trying to enjoy our summer break with our families. We don't really want to be in a meeting at 5.30 until 7.30 at night. So we took a break for the summer. We'll reconvene in August. Um, so that is definitely something that we realized. Um, exploring opportunities to support community members through training, such as understanding data, is also an important approach. As I mentioned before, our CAB members had the opportunity to participate in a data dive conversation. We gave them just surface level data, such as one in three Georgians is considered overweight or obese, and we asked them, does this data make sense to you? What can we do to make this data make sense to you? Because ultimately, the data we're collecting is for the community members and for them to learn from, and we want to make sure that they're able to fully understand, because not everyone's going to be able to understand what one in three Georgians is overweight or obese may mean. 
exploring an asset-based approach where we focus on assets, resources, and sources of joy before focusing on the problems is also an important way to do things So that we realized. So this can be doing something like in focus groups, what we do, instead of starting with, all right, what are the problems in your community? We start off with, what about your community brings you joy? And we start on a positive note versus going straight into the, you know, what, where, what are your problems? Like, what are the negatives about this? Start with a positive and it gets everybody really excited and really open because people like to talk about the positives in their communities. Finally, some recommendations. Our recommendations include exploring PSC changes, supporting community champions, and exploring evaluation me measures that are outside of the SNAP-Ed evaluation framework. These measures could include authentic community engagement, collective efficacy, shared decision-making, and shared program benefits. Other recommendations include expanding partnerships and complementing implementing agencies by expanding these partnerships in areas without current SNAP-Ed programming, also, investing in staff training and technical assistance is crucial in our SNAP-Ed work. And with that, I will pass it to Maggie to talk a little bit about the data part in evaluation. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Maggie Wilkin. I'm the Director of Research and Evaluation at PHI's Center for Wellness and Nutrition. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about our center in a minute. As uh, stated in the intro, I have a lot of years of experience of doing SNAP-Ed evaluation and other types of evaluation as well. Um, so a little bit about our center. Um, the Center for Wellness and Nutrition is a program of the Public Health Institute. We are a national leader in developing campaigns, programs, and partnerships to promote wellness and equitable practices in the most vulnerable communities in California and across the country. We're based in California, so we work a lot in that state. We work with several state agencies and other funders to implement and evaluate food and nutrition programs. Um, and I'll talk today a little bit more about the evaluation activities within the Southeast region, and as well as some of the work in Georgia, which Michaela just talked about. So <laughs> we are partnered with them to do some, a lot of the work, the community um, advisory boards, youth advisory boards, community listening sessions. We're working with Georgia on all of those. So Michaela kind of covered that pretty well. So I first want to start by talking about um, how, how, how our approach was guided by this equitable evaluation um, definition from the Center for Evaluation Innovation. So they define equitable evaluation as practicing and using evaluation to advance equity through diversity of teams beyond ethnic and cultural, cultural appropriateness and validity of methods, ability of designs to reveal structural and system level drivers of inequity, and the degree to which those affected by what is being evaluated have the power to shape and own how evaluation happens. So just how we put some of these in practice. So these are some of the strategies engaging stakeholders in the evaluation process. Um, you know, we, as Michaela might have mentioned, when we um, are working on the Southeast region projects, we have an evaluation working group that meets every other month, and we, uh, or every month, I'm sorry, and we um, engage them fully in the process of coming up with the evaluation plans, the tools, and um, talking to them about how this will work best in their communities. Um, also engaging and centering community in evaluation. So um, this year our 
project is focusing on gathering community voice across the states we're working in in the southeast region, which is North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia currently. Um, and so based on the recommendations from the previous report and what Michaela and Amy spoke about, we knew that this was a clear next step in our process. Um, and then changing, closing the feedback loop, once we hear from the community, it's important that we share with participants um, how, what we heard in the work and how we'll address what we've heard. So we plan to work with the IAs to disseminate the findings and reach out to the people to opt in and hear the results. And then the community listening sessions is part of that that's happening in Georgia, but we're also gonna do it at a broader level across the states with our um, upcoming SEER work. And digging deeper into the data, so as Michaela mentioned, we um, did some GIS mapping to look at gaps. Um, we did that across the states that were involved in this um, Southeast region project. Um, and then also we work with Georgia on a regular basis with their GIS mapping and doing the data disaggregation. Again, there are some limitations to that in terms of small sample size for some of the racial and ethnic groups. Um, but it is important to see if the program is having a differential effect in different groups. And then finally, recognizing bias. It's important for us to recognize our own bias in this work and approach it with a learning mindset. So I'm gonna talk a little bit more about the Southeast region evaluation that we've been conducting. So Amy talked about the FY22, the racial equity and SNAP ed. Um, the full findings are on our website, which we should have added here, but we didn't, but we did add it to the app underneath our session. There's a link there um, on the PHI website. You can see the full report and the executive summary with all of the findings. I know Amy just focused on the recommendations, but all of the findings from that evaluation are in there. Um, currently, we are incorporating community voice, as I talked about, and then we're all in the process of planning for FFY24, hard to believe, um, <laughs> doing a racial equity workforce assessment. As um, you know, we had addressed earlier, it's important to make sure that the um, workforce is diverse and up to speed on equity in their communities. So um, this is just a little bit about the project goal for the FY22 that we already um, talked about, that, but we wanted to identify strategies to ensure that a racial equity lens is used in the context of the snap evaluation framework. We, um, we really wanted to see what was already happening in these states around equity and where um, the SNAP-Ed implementers really felt the gaps were. And so this is um, the sort of the model that we use. It was a combination of two different models um, put together to kind of guide our evaluation. And I won't go too much more into it. You can look at the report. Amy already talked about the recommendations. So I'm just gonna talk a little bit about what we're doing currently. So we're doing, um, we knew that we wanted to engage the community and um, not only engage them with their input but also in sort of a feedback loop as we talked about before. So we wanna capture the lived experiences among people eligible for SNAP to determine what is working well and what can be improved in terms of racial equity and also to provide recommendations on improvements to SNAP and SNAP-Ed programming in each of the states that we're working with to increase food and nutrition security. So this is our scope. Um, what This is what we're currently in the process of doing. Um, we are, this is totally in process right now, so we do not have any findings yet, but um, we, we facilitate the six to nine evaluation working groups meetings. That's part, been part of our SEER work since the beginning. 
Um, we have EWG members representing all three of the participating states that comprise implementing agencies and state agency representatives. Um, the EWG provides valuable input in the evaluation design, the development of data collection tools, and interpreting the results. We're also in the process of conducting an online survey to capture quantitative data among the SNAP-Ed eligible population. So this is going to be conducted through a web panel from the research marketing firm. And this will collect feedback on how to improve SNAP-Ed and SNAP from a racial equity lens from the SNAP-Ed eligible population. So it really focuses on, which I'll talk about in a minute, more accessibility of healthy um, foods and places for physical activity. Um, and then we're in, uh, we're working on conducting feedback groups to capture qualitative data among SNAP-Ed participants. So the um, state representatives have been very helpful in recruiting people who have participated in SNAP-Ed direct education in their states. We're conducting two to three groups per state. Some of them are already done. Amanda, you can tell me how many, but we, we aim to have eight to 12. So we've conducted three at this point, three total across the three states. Um, so we are, um, have about eight to 12 per group, and these are being facilitated by uh, our PHICWN staff. So the plan is to then review, clean, and analyze all of this data and produce a report that has actionable recommendations that add to and enhance the recommendations that we found in the previous evaluation. So talking just a little bit more about the data collection tools, um, to, to do a broad survey among SNAP-Ed participants is challenging um, to just really capture that population. So we opted to do the SNAP-Ed eligible population um, based on income um, and, and kind of get into the five A's of access, as you can see here, affordability, accessibility, availability, accommodation, and acceptability. So we asked about participation in any food assistance programs, any nutrition education programs, what are their barriers to participation? Um, and then how the food where, near where they live, is how well is it accessible, affordable, and what is the quality and cultural appropriateness of the fresh food where they live? And then in the feedback groups, this is with actual SNAP-Ed participants, we are discussing their SNAP-Ed experience. Again, the accessibility and appropriateness and inclusion of SNAP-Ed, how well they feel that the SNAP-Ed programming really reflects their community and is appropriate for their community. Um, and then asking them for recommendations for increased inclusivity and equity and identifying strengths and opportunities for the future um, through in appreciative inquiry. We have, um, we are doing mixed race and ethnic groups and also um, specifically African-American groups, that is a large population in those, th those states, and we have one Spanish-speaking um, group as well. So that's what's currently underway. We are, like I said, working to, this is in the very early stages, but we are talking with the three states about doing an equity workforce assessment, racial equity. So this will, um, you know, based on ASNA's guiding principles and the Praxis Standard of Equity, that's how we're focusing this. Um, it'll include a survey of the IA staff, including administrators, nutrition educators, and evaluators. We plan to do four to five key informant interviews per state as well uh, with the survey um, to gain additional insight about policies, practices, and perceptions of equity in the workplace. Um, and then we plan to also facilitate a monthly community of practice where 
the IA re representatives can reflect on existing systems and be able to share best practices, discuss ideas with each other, and explore opportunities for improving racial equity in SNAP-Ed. Now I'm going to turn it back over to Amy to discuss her work at the Dairy Council. Thanks, everyone. Oh. Yeah, so even though this report and the findings were specific to SNAP-Ed, it can be translated across many different organizations, right? So I want to talk just a little bit about how we're advancing diversity, equity, inclusion, and access at the Dairy Council of California. So um, one, we have an internal. So first, I'll look at internally. So internally, we have a diversity, equity, inclusion, and access committee at, within the Dairy Council that is staff-led work group. And they work on issues related to both internal and external. How, you know, how can we better serve um, within a competent, diverse workforce that understands systems that impact health outcomes? So they might recommend trainings for our staff. They might identify issues within our organization that we should be addressing. Um, so it's really staff-led that then they bring stuff to leadership. Um, they do plan professional development and trainings. Um, some that we require for all staff because we want that base level, but then also we allow others to be optional, but that could be more specific to the work that we're doing. Um, we, we also develop program action plans every year, so we look at integrating health equity into our program action plan. So that's one of the steps that they have to put into their action plan. Um, so we want to do this. So what are the ways that we can be more inclusive, that we can be more equitable, and that we're making sure that we reach a diverse audience? Um, additionally, um, when we're building out job descriptions, that's another way to look at it, right? We're building a diverse and equity workforce. If we're doing community-based projects, what type of staff person might we need for that? And specifically putting in linguistic or cultural needs within the job description to help identify people that might better understand that community and or be able to speak that language or know a little bit more about that. So those are ways that you can also continue to build out your equity-focused workforce. Um, and I'll just give an example of one of the recommendations that were brought up to leadership and that were addressed. So um, as you know, we all have holidays, our organizations set, right? And then at one point, it doesn't necessarily meet everybody's needs. People might celebrate different things or have different um, holidays, different religions, et cetera. So one of the recommendations came out and said, well, in addition to these holidays that we already celebrate, you know, their national holidays or their traditional holidays, we would like to add one floating holiday to our array of holidays within our organization to allow staff that celebrate other traditions to have that. So that's, it's been implemented and now they have a floating holiday that they can take any day of the year to celebrate, you know, personal uh, holiday, a tradition, a religion, or just, you know, a self-care day, whatever they want to do. But that was a success of the internal work group to share. Um, another big focus that we've been looking at is really achieving nutrition equity or nutrition security in the first 1,000 days of life. So we did conduct um, a needs assessment within California to look at this. And we also have um, worked, so some of this was really to look at adapting at curriculum and resources to be more culturally and linguistically responsive um, and build strategic and inclusive partnerships, right? Again, none of us can do all of this work alone. We need to build those relationships and partnerships with other organizations in order to really reach our communities better. So there was a needs assessment that shaped our resources, and on the next slide I'll tell a little bit more about it. And we also found the need that we need to tailor resources for our, our Hispanic, Latino, and black families within California. Um, we recently received an additional grant of 20,000 from NACHO um, to kind of de further develop first 1,000 day resources that are really culturally and linguistically 
uniquely tailored for um, both Hispanic, Latino, and Black African American families. So this collaboration is currently happening um, with UC Irvine, Bonds of Keller, local public health departments um, across California have weighed in. We work with a couple WIC agencies um, in Southern California, which are really large agencies in Los Angeles and Orange County. And we're also talking to families. What do moms need, or what do they? What did they want to? What do they? What would they like to have to better understand how to feed their young children or their babies? How do they introduce fresh foods? Um, what works, what fits, what's safe? Um, so that's currently underway. They're almost, um, we're almost done with those resources and when they are, they will be widely available if you do work with this population um, as well. And then hot off the press, we also just received a grant funding um, in Central Valley of California to actually conduct a nutrition security project with a local FQHC. So again, strategic partnerships and endowment funded us to work with a um, local health center to again, reach families, primarily Latina moms, um, low-resourced, um, needing support. So we're not only going to provide nutrition education to the staff and the healthcare providers, also the families, and also um, vouchers to buy additional healthy food for their families. Because we know it's not only about the education, we also know families need resources. So the endowment is willing to pay for those resources. Um, so when we connected the community nutrition needs assessment, you'll see here, um, it was really something that came out strong and that's similar to SNAP-Ed. There was needed to be improved control, cultural responsiveness, right? It's not a one size fits all. Families want to identify what your resources, they want to know that you know things about their culture and that it meets their needs. Um, things need to be consistent and tailored. You guys can appreciate this. There's so many nutrition messages that come out from so many different angles. They need a trusted source and they need the messages to be consistent and repeated. So when they go to their healthcare provider, see a nutritionist, go to WIC, go to, you know, go to these different programs, they want to see the same messages. So that, again, helps with um, having those partnerships. So if you're working in a community and you're working with your community partners and you're doing nutrition education, it's really valuable to kind of sync up your messages, um, look at the images, look at the foods that you're um, telling people that are healthy for them to make sure it fits in their cultural um, diet plans. And then also professional development was really needed in early child care and life. As we all know, not all healthcare providers get a lot of nutrition education. Um, and a lot of the um, low-end resource communities, there's not a lot of healthcare options. So people might be going to a federally qualifying health center. And they may or may not be able to afford a lot of nutrition education. So providing that professional development and those resources and those messagings to across the healthcare providers, whether they're working with promotoras or community health workers, nurse practitioners or physicians, it's really important to also provide those resources to them and the why and that staying keeping them up on the latest um, recommendations in science. Then additionally, we also um, this past year piloted Let's Eat Healthy Community mini grants. So that was again to adopt a funding model that was really identified um, the community would get small grants they are mini grants they're five to ten thousand dollars they're not a lot of money but they're an opportunity for them to provide things that their community wants um, and there was opportunity for them to have community engagement models built in so I'll just talk about um, two of these grants we did four this year and we're going to continue to do that and expand it going into our new fiscal year which just started in July but um, Cookie with Families at North Valley Military Institute this is a kind of charter school in the northern Los Angeles County um, where it's a high-need community. It is a free school, and they have a food pantry on site. Um, but they have, you know, not necessarily familiar items in those food pantries, or they have a lot of consistently the same items in the food pantry, but people didn't necessarily know how to incorporate those into um, what they were eating. So 
we partnered with a chef who did virtual video, created videos, created recipes. Um, it's a high Latino population in this community. She worked with the families to identify recipes that worked with common items found in the food pantry so that they could utilize those um, in traditional foods. They focused on simplicity, access, and availability. Again, make it easy. This is stuff the school always has in their pantry. This is how you can use it, and this is how it connects to your tradition. She did this in English and Spanish. Um, they invited whole families to participate. They did a lot of virtual, and then they did a, um, a celebration at the end where they all came together in person. So it was really fun and helpful, um, and everyone loved it. And they were able to give food to the families uh, right from the pantry and increase some of those donations based on this project. The other one was empowering healthy choices for teens. This is part of a healthy RC initiative. So Rancho Cucamonga is also a city in Southern California. They are a really unique city where they have a youth council built into their city government, which is really cool. So um, these youth identified the need to really have some, well, some support for wellness. Um, not only nutrition and physical activity, but mental health. We've heard a lot about that. You know, these young people are coming out of COVID and just kind of learning to adapt and all of that. So part of this was a summit that they all held where they learned a lot about different wellnesses, different wellness and, you know, mental health, physical health. And they also um, came together to practice their culinary skills. So these youth um, came up with their own recipes. Um, they did a twi like twist and they made twists and they did culturally inclusive meals. So the youth council is quite diverse. They did, um, they adapted some lassies, some twist on classic smoothies, some vegetarian ceviche, and they also made some type of like chocolate yogurt dip. And the, I love it. They're like, this dip is fire. They loved it and they were really healthy. It was like by youth, for youth, and it also supported youth leadership. So the group was able to invite a lot of their peers to the summit, share some of their recipes, and they were also able to get a lot of resources. Um, that they needed. So again, it was youth-led. So those are just some examples of how you can incorporate, you know, these different strategies into your programs. And that is all I have today. Thank you. Um, so now if we'll take questions. Um, there is a mic up here. Um, but if you want to just talk really loud, you can, if you don't want to make it to the mic. Oh, yes. And Amanda as well. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add about the community listening sessions and how those are going and what are the best practices? Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> She's kind of leading that <laughs> part of our evaluation. Um, while, you were, while you were asking your question, the first thing I thought of was as a part of the community listening sessions, at the end we do a really brief, quick like feedback survey, just like how it was going. And one of the questions we ask is how you would like to hear, um, 
hear about the information coming out of the, the session. So we give them the option, um, there's, a whole, there's a section like, do you want to, first like, do you want to hear about the information? And then how you would like to hear about it. So we have people, you know, uh, text, email, phone call, um, especially at um, our community listening sessions, we are looking, we are um, getting information from people who are um, SNAP, SNAP ed participants, so, or eligible, and they're not always, um, you know, email's not always the best way. So we have a lot of, uh, at, the, at the first group, we had a lot of older adults who where I don't use email, so I would like for you to call me, um, or um, I would I come up to this uh, center so I can make sure they have it and then they can relay it to me. So just making sure that you are not just defaulting to you know email, check it out online, all of that. Make sure it's something that they are able to access. And another thing, just same thing, even with the phones and text message. Everybody doesn't have unlimited minutes um, or unlimited texting. So make sure that's a way that they want to be able to get the information. Thank you. Oh, go ahead. Um, can we talk more about the recruitment of the CAD members? How was, was that diverse? Thank you. Was that, how was that diverse? Talk a little bit about how they were recruited. Yeah, so what we did for recruitment processes, number one, we worked with our implementing agencies and they were able to hand out, we made, created a flyer available in both English and Spanish um, and we gave it to our implementing agencies as well as we reached out to several like community coalitions that are going on throughout, you know, Metro Atlanta, Columbus, Augusta, like these bigger hubs, Savannah. Um, and we reached out to them and we also, we did like a short little presentation and we provided them with the flyer. We did a lot of email blasts as well. Um, and those are the main ways we did it, but then we also had them complete an application. So they had to apply to be a community advisory board member. It was a short survey monkey link or they could call a phone number and if they didn't have internet or something, um, they could call a phone number and we would go through the application process with them to have it filled out. And we were really looking, a lot of the questions we asked because not everybody understands what SNAPED is when they're applying. They might just think, oh, it's food stamps, it's SNAP. But SNAPED is a completely different facet. So what we made sure was in order to be SNAPED eligible, we did the qualification as they either have themselves or a family member is on SNAP, WIC, TANF, Medicaid, or free and reduced. They have a child that's on free and reduced lunch. And then we also asked where they lived. And we were really trying to target communities that have a very high SNAP ed eligible population and kind of the areas where we're not hitting. I know I mentioned that before in my presentation how there were little we have little bubbles of areas that I'm sure everybody does where we don't have any programming at all, but there's a high SNAPED eligible population. So we really would like to get that community's feedback and then that way we can take those community members, they can become community champions and then eventually our implementing agencies can go in there, find the local organizations that they can work with, start the DNE and PSE process. So that's kind of how we recruited them. Um, we had, I think, 35 applicants last year um, and this year we're hoping for more so fingers crossed <laughs> um, we're starting the recruitment process earlier that actually in like two weeks um, so that's how we kind of did that so they yeah they they can choose to stay if they want to um, we last year we only had we had seven or eight members last year we had 11 this year that ended up because you know sometimes 
they apply and then they they're like oh no I don't want to do this I don't want to commit to that so we ended up having 11 full stay on um and they can choose to stay on I think we've talked to most of them that's our main topic for our net for our August meeting is to discuss with them and see if they really want to stay on we've had we had three stay on from last year and we're hoping that there's a couple that we really like want to stay so we're like please stay we we love you you're great um so we're hoping for at least five or six that will stay for next year and then we'll recruit more we want to do between 15 and 20 um for next year that's our goal yeah you're moderating you mentioned earlier um doing a workforce assessment can you talk a little bit more about what you were looking for in the workforce assessment and who that was done with was it with like the local implementing agencies or so that was done prior I was hired in 2020 so I didn't have like full I wasn't fully part of that Amy can probably touch more on it too because we contracted with the Public Health Institute which Amy was the former yeah, president executive yeah executive yeah, so for the workforce assessment, we did, again, um, so we're working with the state agency in Georgia at that time. So they, um, their goal was to kind of, again, provide trainings and um, tools for their workforce that were implementing SNAP-Ed. So we did do kind of like a light needs assessment to identify the primary topics that they wanted to learn about and grow into. Um, and then we set out a training plan. I know we also, um, developed kind of like a tool guidebook with them. So with every, um, I think we ultimately did four webinars. Again, this was in the early 2020s, so we're gonna do it all virtual anyway. Um, and then with every um, webinar, then came kind of like additional tools, additional links, additional ways to apply those strategies within your workforce. Um, so that was ongoing over time. And then I think this year it's more as needed. Um, there was a couple that they needed specific technical assistance on a specific topic, so then we would schedule that specifically with them and kind of give them tools and strategies to work on a topic of a certain area to kind of build over that. And a lot of the work um, that we initially focused on back then was, again, some of a basis around equity, of course, PSEs and advancing PSE strategies, um, sustainability and partnerships. So again, those are all kind of related back to the equity piece, but it's really, again, how do we sustain programs and how do we build these non-traditional partnerships? How do we expand PSE strategies? Um, and then of course, looking at that equity focus. So I think um, they've just continued to do and build that within Georgia SNAP-Ed throughout the years. And then I think it sounds like you guys are gonna conduct a more of a kind of multi-state regional type piece to again, look at workforce assessment again. Um, but I would say in that initial SEER report, there were some things that bu bubbled to the top again that probably helps to um, build out, like, what do workforces need to really be successful? And I think that's really an important part to also invest into your organization and make your team feel valued as well as part of the process and give them the tools they need to succeed. And just to add to, um, we're going to, like Maggie mentioned, we're doing in 2024, we're going to do another workforce assessment. And I know a lot of, we've, my colleague and I, Latrice Davenport, she, her and I have heard a lot of different kind of, not complaints, but like kind of pain points from our implementing agencies in hiring and retention and those policy systems and environmental changes and all my SNAP-Ed folks and pairs. That is also a <laughs> big point of contention as well and pairs in general. So I think that's, we're gonna really hone in on those topics. <laughs> yeah, and pairs is a lot um, for those of y'all that are familiar. Um, so those are probably gonna be a lot of the things that we're expecting to come up in the 2024 workforce assessment. So I just wanted to add that in too. 
Um, thank you. And then hopefully we can get to the other side of the room. Sorry, y'all feel neglected. <laughs> um, so something I've been hearing uh, from certain communities I work with, in addition to providers, is um, how to address, how to effectively address and manage feedback and survey fatigue from communities, especially target communities. Um, and I'm sure this is nothing new, right? After a while, when you um, keep uh, asking for to take another survey or do another evaluation for a survey for for a target community around intervention, and they feel like there aren't there isn't much improvement being made, right? Like it could lead to um, it could lead to a lot of things. It could weaken the relationships. So, and this is something that I'm hearing more and more, right? As data and evaluation and and outcomes-driven work is especially popular right now. So, how are you all navigating that? Or, let me ask: Are you encountering that with your like with your projects? How are you navigating that um, in a way that uh, instead of the relationships being transactional, um, it promotes a little bit more reciprocity. I'll say something quickly. That was, you know, that was in the recommendations about focusing more on um, less on individual change. You know, a lot of you know, you know, they do these assessments every time they do a direct education, and it's, you know, the results are kind of similar. Like we know how these programs are impacting people on an individual level. Do we need to keep asking them how it's affecting them? And so maybe focusing more on the broader evaluations, more qualitative, getting stories, asset framing, things like that might make more sense than kind of collecting this individual's level survey data, especially around things that we already know. A lot of these programs that are research tested, do we really need to keep asking people these same questions over and over? Maybe if it's a population that you don't have the information from um, or that you want more information from, it might make sense, but um, you know, in general, focusing more on more qualitative and broader um, types of evaluation could be helpful. And I don't know if Michaela can speak to it more. Yeah. Does it matter who is doing the survey? That's a good question. Mm -hmm. Probably, Amy. <laughs> I would no, say yes. It definitely <laughs> does. I think, again, that's why those partnerships are so important. So your community-based organization, A, they can tell you, no, we've done this many things, and no, my, my people can't take any more surveys. But then again, if you want them to complete surveys, you might want to go to those same partners because they're going to have that trusted relationship and say, this is why we need it. But similar to what Maggie said, it is survey fatigue. And the worst thing we can do is collect data and do nothing with it. So make sure you have a plan. Um, don't go in there and collect this data and never give the data back to the community. So they're like, I did the, you'll hear it, I did this. I've taken surveys every year and they never did anything. They never come back, it doesn't result in anything. I heard someone call it like, it's like the mosquito effect. You come in, you take everything and you leave and you never bring anything back. So you really need to have a plan. We don't need to survey every direct education curriculum. We just don't, we know they work. You've already tested it. SNAPED requires evidence-based testing, so the, the education works, but how? And then the other thing, when possible, compensate your community members. If you can find a way to compensate them, then they're actually getting paid for their expertise. They're actually getting paid to be part of this. Um, and I think the PSEs are really important because like, you're working together to make a change in their community. It's worth it if they see the change. But just, just um, asking them, did you change your eating behaviors when we know 
there's so many barriers put in front of them with resources, with access, with availability. We, we need to stop doing that all the time. But yeah, I think those key partnerships in the community are core because they already have that trust relationship. And she'd come back and say, no, my community does not want to talk to you anymore, you know, or they're, they're tired. And they, know, they have insight. This is what is happening in the community right now. And to the point of if does it matter who is distributing the surveys and things, it 100% does because, like I had mentioned, I did have the opportunity to go to one of the community listening sessions. And the moment I said that I was from DFAX, DHS, I got bombarded with questions about food stamps. And they were like, well, why can't you approve my stamps? And I was like, I don't, I don't work in that department. I can't. I'm sorry. There's only so much I can do. My hands are tied. But Amanda and her colleague, Mitria, were there. And they kind of they were like, OK, she's here just to observe. Like, just don't ask questions. And then they also worked with the organization. It was the Sickle Cell Foundation in Atlanta. And they, Amanda, Mitria, you can probably speak more to this. They had meetings prior with that organization and they had their community leaders helping facilitate the entire community listening session. So instead of it coming from us and the Public Health Institute, it was coming directly from their leaders that they're familiar with in their community members. So that's something that also helped because they were able to speak to them how community members want to be speak, spoken to and they are more familiar with, you know, the ins and outs of their communities and, you know, the foods that they like and what they should talk about. So that was also really important. So that's something that I personally had to go through, but... <laughs> It happens every time, but yeah, just wanted to add that in too. Okay. Did we have some over here? No? Oh, we are? Okay, one more and then we will, anybody? Okay, oh, right there. Just a, two quick questions. One, when you're looking at aggregating data with the number of people with disabilities, are you going to be collecting that data? Because that is really hard to find, and yet they do use SNAP. Okay, great. So the answer is yes. And the second, great. The second one is a broader question, which is not for this, but something I think we need to think about, is all those people who are working poor that we have so much missing data. The person who's not SNAP eligible but still can't put their food on the table, but they're not eligible for many of the research programs. So I just ask us to think about ways, at $30,000 at $30, for a family of four, there are so many working poor that we don't understand how they're navigating. Mm -hmm. Thanks, thanks Thank for a great you. presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, bye. And you can email any of us if you have additional questions, if you, um, I encourage you to look at the report if you're in interested in more information. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>